and they found that the psilocybin and actually turned down activity in these regions of the brain. So I think a lot of people would imagine, Hey, I am given mushrooms and like, it's going to like light up my brain. And there's like all these like neurons are going to be firing and going wild. And it's going to be colorful on the imaging studies. And they were really kind of surprised. It was like, no, things got quiet. Like there's certain areas that like got turned down. And what does that mean? Right. And in these specific areas, it was a linked pathway. It's, it's the default mode network. The default mode network is sort of important in a lot of mental health conditions because it may be the areas of the brain that when we're sort of quiet, when we're not trying to reply to an email, we're not trying to say something in conversation to somebody else. And for people with depression, we can get those ruminating thoughts and that potentially the psilocybin was interrupting that process. What's up, listeners? Welcome back to another episode of Get Psyched. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I'm sitting down with Kristen Dawson. She's the head of mental health over at Wild Health, and I could not be more excited to have her on the show. I pick her brain all about ketamine, MDMA, and psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. So for those of you that have heard any of my other shows about psychedelics, you know this is right up my alley, and you know that this is going to be packed full of research. My goal with these episodes is not to sway you one way or another, but instead provide the information that's available and allow you to make the best decision for you. Today, we dive into ketamine and chronic depression, preventative care and optimizing health, psilocybin and the treatment of resistant depression, and our default mode network, which is really, really important. I want you to think about that default mode network. When we talk about it in today's show, think about the kind of narrative, the kind of story that your default mode network gives you each day and how you might change that if you were given the opportunity. During the show, you know, I was sipping on some element LMNT, my favorite hydration supplement. I cannot get enough of the watermelon flavor right now. And for just the cost of shipping, if you hit the link in the bio lens times element, you can get your hands on a free sample pack. So what are you waiting for? Hit that link, grab some element and until next week, enjoy the show. What's up guys, Lindsay here, and I'm sitting down with Kristen Dawson, who is the director of mental health for Wild Health. I'm so excited to talk about this because for those of you that have followed the show or my journey for a long time, we know that there's this huge tie between physical and mental health. And I can only kind of talk about it anecdotally and what I've experienced. And I'm so excited for Kristen to bring in the research and kind of what they're finding over at Wild Health. So Kristen, thank you so much for, for stopping by today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Totally. For people who are not aware of what Wild Health is, can you give a little intro to that, who you are kind of and what the mission is? Yeah. Um, well, so the mission is simple, actually. It's to transform the lives of our patients and our partners. <laughs> it's a pretty big mission. Yeah, it's pretty simple, but it's huge. <laughs> <laughs> pretty big one. Um, and I'm so glad I got that right too, because my husband is the founder. And if I hadn't said that right, I would have been in trouble. Um, but I think the way that we go about that is of course, um, maybe a little bit different than what other organizations or healthcare companies might do. Um, so we are a genomics-based precision medicine healthcare company. And what that means is we are deeply uh, invested in understanding the genetic variants of our patients and the real-time biomarkers, lab work, uh, wearable data that they are uh, running around with right here and right now. And we use that information, we collect all of that data, uh, and we are able to come up with a very specific uh, set of recommendations in what we would consider the pillars of health. So that would be nutrition is the big one that comes uh, first in the report. Um, exercise, dialing in your sleep, 
and dialing in your stress management would be sort of the top four that we're talking about with people. Um, so it's, it's a lot to unpack for our, uh, for our patients. And that's why we're really intentional about um, partnering with health coaches um, so that when patients get all this information and uh, are recommended to potentially change the way they eat or change the way they uh, look at time-restricted eating or um, look at, you know, how they're going to change their sleep hygiene and their sleep patterns. Um, they've got not only a physician to, to walk them through that, but also a health coach to help them, uh, to help them start to make some of those big changes. I love that. And I love that you are incorporating wearables into this because there's only so much, right. That people can say, yeah, I sleep seven hours a night or whatever it is. Um, to actually have that real-time data seems so, so helpful. And I can't tell you how often I have the conversation with my clients, right. They either come in because they're in active crisis and I'm doing crisis management Mm -hmm. Or they come in and they have come like complex trauma, right? And they're really ready to do this deep trauma work. Mm -hmm. And I start off so many of my sessions and we're talking for weeks at a time where we're dialing in sleep. We're dialing in what people are eating, how they're mindfully moving their bodies. And so often I get pushed back. It's like, this isn't therapy. Like this isn't, what do you mean? We're not talking about my childhood trauma. And my answer is like, you're not ready to dive into that. If you're in such a depleted state and I took you to that place, what kind of effects could that have? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, um, it's, it's a, it's a fine balance. I think within, uh, folks who are really stuck with respect to being profoundly depressed or, or being profoundly impacted by their trauma or being so anxious that they can't get out to a grocery store to, you know, or a farmer's market to buy some of these things. So I think we definitely have kind of two camps of patients, at least maybe from my perspective, we have folks who um, are in a place where they're able to make maybe some of those changes that you were just talking about, you know, maybe they, for the first time hear what an aura ring is and they start using the data and they start getting that feedback from the aura ring to change some of their sleep habits. But on the other end of the spectrum, we may have people who we give them this information and it is just too hard of a lift to make some of those changes. And that's where I think I know we might talk about this later, but I think a rapidly working intervention for those folks, um, like a ketamine uh, infusion, um, something that could sort of disrupt the stuckness, then kind of opens up the possibility for those people to, to make some of the changes that you're talking about. So it's, I, yeah, I think you have to, um, you know, try and make some inroads in, in somewhere, <laughs> right? Whether it's the trauma work, whether they're prepped and ready for the trauma work or whether you have to kind of go back to, um, you know, if you're not eating well for your brain, it's going to be really hard to unpack the trauma and to work through that trauma focused therapy. Yeah. How are you? I'm really excited to dive into the psychedelic conversation and the research behind it. Um, and before we get there, what are some of the interventions you're taking kind of before one might get to that step, right? Before one might need that big pattern disruptor. Yeah. Well, so just what you talked about, right? I mean, just the, the going through and making some of the, the recommendations um, with respect to diet and supplementation for brain health. Um, so starting with some of those interventions, um, really diving into your sleep patterns. I mean, all the things that you just, you just mentioned, but then certainly, you know, psychotherapy, um, we're interested in, uh, pharmacogenomics of, you know, the typical medications that might be used for some of those conditions. Um, so trying to use your genetic information to make an informed decision if, if a typical medicine might be right for somebody, mm. but certainly I'm very therapy forward. Um, and you know, would definitely, um, recommend, uh, recommend that for, for our patients that aren't necessarily at the severity level of needing a, a reset in, in terms of the ketamine infusion. Yeah. Um, what might be, what would you categorize as a client that was at that point of needing that infusion? 
Yeah, so I think for right for right now, um, in terms of the clinical research we have, really what I would recommend is that we have one of the diagnoses for which ketamine, we're talking specifically, I guess, about ketamine right now, um, for which ketamine has been shown to be helpful. So the two primary would be treatment-resistant depression and chronic PTSD. Now there's other uses um, with respect to some anxiety disorders. So there's some obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, there's at least one study with ketamine and OCD, um, social anxiety disorder, and then bipolar depression. And really what I think makes the most sense, at least right now, is if patients have tried at least two kind of more traditional um, treatment rounds. So for depression, that usually looks like, you know, an SSRI and an SNRI or, you know, two different antidepressants you know, ideally with psychotherapy, ideally with also, you know, lifestyle interventions as well. Um, when folks don't end up responding to those, then that's when you might progress to thinking about another intervention like ketamine. Yeah. Um, for the trauma-related folks, um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't necessarily require a trauma-based psychotherapy. I think that there are a lot of different trauma-informed um, ways of treating PTSD that don't necessarily have to be cognitive processing therapy or you know some of these um, prolonged exposure therapies, um, but but usually they've tried at least one medication to try and manage their symptoms and things are still pretty severe. So we do look at the severity level of their symptoms too, right? Um, how how much is their um, is their trauma or their depression? Um, interfering with, you know, life and trying to have relationships and trying to go to work and um, do all the things that are meaningful for them. Yeah. When you are gathering all of the genetic data, um, one of my favorite sayings, and I can't remember who said it, but it's basically that genetics load the gun and lifestyle pulls the trigger. Mm. So are there, and I think that there's a lot of things, right? When my doctor explained it to me, I have an astronomically high ACE score. I have heart disease on, you know, my dad's side of the family. I have addiction on my mom's side of the family. And so I got all of this information and felt really stunted by it, right? Like, oh my gosh, I'm doomed. I have this genetic blueprint that is telling me I'm gonna, you know, I'm bound to be addicted. I'm bound to die early. And I was like crippled by it until she was like, well, Linz, let's, kind of back up. Yes. And because we know all of these light switches are there, let's not turn them on, right? Let's create a lifestyle where we never actually turn on that genetic predisposition that's there. So is there any sort of um, genetic marker or lifestyle that you are seeing that is more closely tied to some of these um, kind of disorders or potential like depression or anxiety? Yeah. So it's so complex. <laughs> like, there's just so many of them. Right. And I think these little lifestyle changes, you know, 1% here and 1% here and 1% here ends up really changing the trajectory of your mental health course. Um, and so it's not, there's not a smoking gun in terms of one or two, that's what we're finding in psychiatry and mental health. Um, we have a tsunami of genetic information related to mental health, um, but it's all these incremental vi- variants that at a population level make a big difference, but at an individual and personal level, um, you're absolutely right. You have a million things that you can do to alter the course of whether or not that so-called, and I don't know if I love the loaded gun, but, but I, I mean, I understand. <laughs> that's, why I went, that's why I went light switches. What yeah, light yeah. switches? Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, really what we, um, you know, our message is really that, that hopefully this is empowering for people and this is not, 
meant to be something that is scary and overwhelming. And again, that's where I think probably having the support of a health coach walk you through it and give you encouragement. Because of course, when you're trying to make any changes in your um, your behaviors, it's 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 going to be a series of starts and stops, and you know, ongoing encouragement would be needed. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of little things that potentially you know, can add up to some big, um, brain benefits. So I'll just use maybe even just an example, um, from, from my, from my clarity report, which is kind of this, you know, unpacking of all these variants and and recommendations. Um, so I'm somebody that has had anxiety my entire life. Um, we all know that aerobic exercise is powerful in terms of treating, uh, not just depression, but can be really helpful for folks with anxiety disorders. Um, my genetics me sort of put me in a space where I am more likely to be an endurance athlete <laughs> than a strength athlete, which is kind of funny because I'm not, not either one of those, but, <laughs> um, but my physician, you know, Dr. Julie Fouché and my health coach, um, they sort of know that just, I love trail running and I love going on long bike rides. And for me, when I'm able to do that consistently, it really has an impact on my mental health, right? It's a protective factor for me and it helps me manage my anxiety. But I also know that I should be doing some strength work. I should be, you know, lifting heavy things, so to speak. And so when I do my strength work, I get really, really sore. And it turns out that I have this genetic variant that um, is tied to my zinc transporter, which makes me, um, both of my, uh, both of copies of my gene make me more likely to have that delayed onset of muscle soreness, this sort of, this DOMS kind of effect. And if I have that sort of in a really significant way, I'm not going to get as many runs in that week. Right. And so this is like this kind of, um, you know, small example of, I know that now about my genes and that, you know, light switch. And actually what I know I can do now is I can take a zinc supplement on the day that I do a strength work. And that's going to help me be able to get back into aerobic exercise and do the thing that really kind of lights me up and helps me manage my mental health. So it's just a sort of a small um, insight that actually, I think over the course of my lifetime is probably going <laughs> to make a big difference for me. Um, and, you know, was really valuable um, finding that out. Absolutely. And is able to keep you consistent, right? There's nothing, there's nothing sexy about consistency, but it's what works. <laughs> Um, and if you were consistently doing something that was, you know, it was, I'm doing this because I should, right. I call it shooting on myself doing this because I should. (laughs) And now I actually can't continue to do the things that actually fill me up that I love because I'm so sore from doing this thing that I should have done. And with something like a zinc tablet, boom, now I get to have the best of both worlds, right. I can still strength train and go do these things. And what it's reminding me of, and which I love so much about personalized medicine, which is crazy that we even have to talk about it that way. Cause I think so often there's like these big generalizations or blankets that are put over people and we're not, we're not a one size fits all kind of organism. Um, And what I kept running into when I was going to doctors until I ultimately found um, the practitioner I work with, shout out Leslie Brocchini. Um, (laughs) I was going to the doctors and telling them something's wrong. I don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong. And they're like, you have a really healthy BMI. You work out five to six days a week. You eat really clean. Nothing's showing up wrong, you know, come back in a year. And so it was kind of this just like, no, but something's off. Right. And then I went to this doctor who finally ran the test that I was asking for, who met me where I was at. It was like, yeah, you're not inherently sick, but you know, you can feel better. So let's get you to feel better. And that's what it sounds like. Not only are you working with very, very sick populations, but also that quote unquote, well population that knows there's something more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think what we're talking about, you know, also it's just kind of preventative kind of care where our sort of healthcare systems that I've been working with in the past, it's a, you know, it's a response to a really, you know, glaring medical problem versus really trying to be proactive about helping 
helping people live their healthiest, longest, best lives. That's really what I want to be a part of and, and, you know, the kind of work that we're doing right now. And I, and I also really think that mental health shouldn't always, you know, it should always be hand in hand with your global medical health and, um, you know, the integration of mental health within healthcare systems really is something that I would love to see happen more and more and more. Um, there, there's such a bi-directional relationship. I mean, just, just in the last five years about, you know, learning about our gut microbiome and it's like, who, you know, when I was in med, med school, you couldn't have, you know, I couldn't have imagined that, you know, what was happening in my gut was going to impact any mental health condition. Um, and then, you know, five years ago, I read a paper, I used to be working in an autism clinic about something called a fecal microbiota transfer, where you're literally like transferring poo from healthy kids into autism spectrum kids and finding really remarkable results. I mean, that totally, it totally blew my mind that this is a thing that was happening. And it just kind of opened up this, this idea again, that, you know, your brain is not just floating around detached from the rest of your body, which sounds so silly for me to say that this way, you know, now, but um, I just, I think it's just, you know, such a great reason why we need to be working closely with our um, sort of global functional medicine practitioners in, um, in treating mental health conditions. Yeah, I could not agree more. And I, uh, my partner is a PA and he tells me all the time, he's like, thank you so much for the psych teams, right? Because we get these, he works at pediatric hospital. We get these mm-hmm. kids. I'm not trained to deescalate or to, yeah. you know, I, I, little things I'm like, Oh, show them like butterfly hugs and this bilateral mm-hmm. stimulation and do all these things. And he's like, what are you talking about? And so I do think that there's still, you know, you oftentimes see the mental health practitioners and the physical health, and they work in these different camps until they need to come together and then they separate again. And mm-hmm. so this integration it's something that I really hope happens to you. <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, talking about it for decades and it just never has really fully happened. Right. Um, there's sort of these one-off programs or, you know, like, I mean, it, yeah, I I've been, you know, I've worked within an HIV clinic before, but you know, it's like a, it's sort of an exception and not the rule to have a mental health provider within a, a specialty medical clinic. And, definitely would love to see more of that. (laughs) Absolutely. So we talked a bit in the beginning about the research behind psychedelic assisted psychotherapies. We dove in a little bit to ketamine. Um, I also know you did the MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Mm -hmm. Association of Psychedelic Science training. Um, And selfishly, I love to hear the research behind it. And I'm going to assume that (laughs) my audience does too. Um, So maybe we can dive into those different you know, we talked about three before the show, ketamine, psilocybin, and MDMA, and really talk about the science behind it all. Because I think that, and I've talked about this on other shows, it's being packaged to a lot of people as this miracle drug or something that's going to absolutely change your life. And I'm not here to say it won't. I also think that that sets up this, whether it's a confirmation bias or this huge, 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 um, you know, kind of build up that maybe is a letdown when they don't get those results or have that experience. And so really talking about the science behind it, I think allows people to then make their own educated decision about what they want to go do instead of my friend told me that MDMA really helped her depression, right? Like really diving into the nitty gritty of this. So Whichever one of those, I know we already talked a little bit about ketamine. So maybe if we want to start there and we can dive into some other substances. Yeah. So we started off talking about ketamine. Um, so that's a nice place to start because it's legal and, and it has been rolled out. So, um, and again, you know, these compounds work in different ways, right? So, um, I think you're right. It, they all kind of, Um, at times can be, you know, sort of this global, like these are the new things that we're trying in mental health. And um, it's, it's pretty important, I think, to, to be grounded in what has been studied and not studied with each of these, um, each of these compounds. So we'll start with ketamine, because again, it's, it's been around 
um, in terms of being used in anesthesia for decades, right? So it was, um, it started to be rolled out in anesthesia suites in about the 1970s. Um, and it had um, been noticed on the battlefield that folks who had had ketamine afterwards seemed to have had improvement in mood. And so eventually um, folks started to sort of wonder if there could be a mood enhancing benefit to ketamine. And so we have our first sort of mental health studies within the last 10 years. Um, and it has sort of been um, studied more rapidly, I think in the last five years. Um, certainly there's been an explosion of people um, delivering ketamine in clinics across the country now. Um, and then just, you know, the number of clinical trials available. So I would say that, um, you know, just to be clear, it does not have an FDA approved, um, uh, it's not FDA approved for these mental health conditions, right? So in terms of the IV infusion of ketamine. So the IV infusion of ketamine is um, oftentimes delivered in a certain dose range that's sub-anesthetic. So it's not what's gonna be used in surgery. It's a much lower dose of it. And that's because the trials have, have looked at this, it's 0.5 milligrams per kilogram dose and found that to be kind of the um, most efficacious for the treatment of depression. So the studies initially were looking at, again, this category of patient who had tried some other things, were not getting better, and still had depression that was moderate to severe. Um, and so those individuals have been um, administered typically a series of six infusions over the course of two to three weeks. And what's been really exciting in the field is how rapidly people feel better. So if you you know, sort of contrast ketamine with an SSRI, which would be maybe the first line treatment for depression. The SSRIs, as we know, take four, six, sometimes eight weeks to be a benefit, whereas ketamine is now this rapidly acting, um, uh, you know, treatment where people can feel better in as, in as little as four hours. Now, what we find is, you know, a lot of people with depression and respond to ketamine, they feel better rapidly, but they don't always sustain those benefits. And that's where the art and the science of ketamine treatment is really gonna have to flush things out because some patients, they get that relief, they feel better and maybe they stay feeling better for a month, for weeks, for a couple months. We, we aren't really good at predicting how long they're gonna feel better for and what we really want to do is find ways to extend that healthiness, that response to ketamine. And that's where, you know, we don't have all the answers to that. And there's a ton of research that needs to be done to see what we can do to extend the benefit of ketamine. There has been a trial with cognitive behavior therapy, pairing that with ketamine to see, you know, and, and it did look as though those folks stayed healthier for longer. Um, so that's a big question mark, right? How do we, how do we do that? But, but it is very hopeful in the field um, to, to see that patients are getting better after not, you know, not feeling well for a while. Um, I'll contrast that with, um, so we can talk a little bit about psilocybin for that same kind of patient population, the ones that have tried to, to get help for their depression and are still feeling, um, feeling ill. Um, so psilocybin is, uh, is, different in terms of how it works. Um, so it, and I guess I would just say the classical psychedelics. So things like psilocybin, um, LSD, mescaline, um, DMT, they're all kind of in this category of um, serotonergic psychedelics. So they work on this specific receptor in the brain. That receptor is found in kind of the cerebral cortex. And so, um, what's happening or what we think might be happening with psilocybin. And this is the work of Dr. David Nutt and uh, colleagues at the Imperial College of uh, London. Um, they have looked at brain scans of people who have been given psilocybin. So they, um, you know, gave healthy people psilocybin and then they did some brain imaging studies um, afterwards. And they found that the psilocybin 
worked on these particular regions of the brain and, and actually turned down activity in these regions of the brain. So I think a lot of people would imagine like, hey, I am given mushrooms and like, it's gonna like light up my brain. And there's like all these like neurons are gonna be firing and going wild and it's gonna be colorful on the, you know, on the imaging studies. And they were really kind of surprised. It was like, no, things got quiet. Like there are certain areas that like got turned down. And what does that mean? Right. And, and these specific areas um, were all sort of, it was a linked pathway. It's, it's the default mode network. Um, and so the, the default mode network is sort of important in a lot of mental health conditions because it may be the areas of the brain that when we're sort of quiet, when we're not trying to do mental math or we're not trying to reply to an email, we're not trying to say something, you know, in conversation to somebody else, it's those kind of quiet thoughts that are going on uh, in our minds. And for people with depression, we can get those ruminating thoughts about past things I've done. I said this wrong. I wish I hadn't, you know, said that in this interaction. Um, I'm missing out on all these activities. It's sort of those ruminating thoughts that can start to really um, be prominent in depression. And that potentially the psilocybin was interrupting that process um, and allowing for new kind of thoughts and experiences and connections. Um, so that was a pretty interesting finding with that particular psychedelic. Um, but the studies are really um, hopeful. So. Um, there was a comparison trial with escitalopram, which is also called Lexapro, and psilocybin for these really profoundly depressed patients. Um, they gave two doses of psilocybin, so they had these two medicine sessions. One was kind of just like a, a test dose of 10 milligrams, and the other one was more of the kind of intervention dose, mm -hmm. right? And... Um, this comparison trial, really psilocybin came out on top, which is pretty remarkable, right? Because it was just two sessions. Now they did couple it with therapy. And I want to be really clear that there were some very specific safety parameters around it. There was preparatory sessions, which is something you would hear in the MAPS training with MDMA, right? How do we set the um, intention, the mindset? How do we give people um, a sense of safety, psychological safety to take these, um, take these substances. Um, there were therapists in the room for the entire six hours that the psilocybin was sort of actively, you know, they were actively having an experience with it. And then there were integration sessions afterwards. So I do think that was an important part of the treatment. I don't think it was the medicine on its own, right? It was medicine coupled with therapy. Um, but they did find um, some really remarkable uh, results. And in fact, some of those psilocybin patients, um, even at the three month mark out, were still in remission from their depressed episode. Um, so yeah, so it's a, um, you know, it's an exciting, it's an exciting time to be in mental health, I think, right? But, but again, I think there's also some caution and, <laughs> you know, consideration warranted to the safety aspects of, of these, of these, um, substances and treatments. Yeah, I could not agree more. And I love that you bring up the set and setting piece and the integration, because I think so many people just assume that this is going to be a peak experience. And then I feel better and don't really have all of the knowledge that the work that kind of is sandwiched on either side of this experience, which is so important. Um, I was listening to another podcast recently. I don't know if you listen to the Huberman lab podcast or not, mm -hmm. but that yeah. is, yeah. I binge that like crazy. Um, and in tandem with an, a different article I had read, and it was all about, um, psilocybin and the, I don't want to say deconstruction of self, but the different insight that you have of self. So it's almost like this somatic experience of knowing that the self can be perceived differently than what my waking consciousness allows me um, to kind of perceive myself as. Am I totally butchering this? Is this question making sense? I see you nodding. I know where you're going with it. Well, I think I know. I don't. Um, so the psilocybin versus escitalopram study, they, they looked at um, 
characteristics of the experience as being a predictor of response to the psilocybin. Meaning, do you have to have, it, it doesn't have to be ego dissolution, but do you have to have some um, spiritual or very moving or insightful um, experience to be able to feel better, to feel less depressed later? Mm-hmm. Is, that what you're, is that what you're thinking of? Because the answer is yes that they did see that people who had, um, and again, it doesn't have to be a certain theme, but they had some meaningful theme or insight or spiritual uh, peak experience that tended to to be a good prognostic factor in terms of they're, they're gonna be less depressed for longer. I will say that's in contrast to ketamine infusion treatments because it does not look like, and this is something that I, I try and teach our patients um, because they have this expectation of if I don't have a spiritual experience or I don't see lights or I don't see something, oh my gosh, this is not going to work for me. And so during the infusion, there's some, sometimes can be some anxiety and, um, you know, uh, panic, like, oh, this is not happening for me. I'm not doing it right. (laughs) I'm not doing it right. There's a lot of, yes, I hear that after every first time ketamine infusion, I don't <laughs> doing this right. <laughs> and, and we're like, no, you know, this is, you know, this is a different, this is a different substance. It's working differently. Um, now I think, um, afterwards, I will say after the ketamine infusion, I still think integration is important because there, there are these kind of new connections and insights that people oftentimes bring to the table afterwards, but they didn't necessarily originate in the actual infusion. And I guess that's where it might be different from psilocybin. Yeah. And you're naming that there are therapists during the um, psilocybin experience are ketamine infusions. Cause I've heard of lozenges and different, you know, modalities there. Um, but it, hearing about it as an infusion is, is new to me. Um, are you also engaging in any sort of talk therapy or is there a therapist available while the infusion is happening? So there's a wide range of how people use ketamine, as you <laughs> pointed out. So, so there um, are certainly people who are doing um, what's called CAP, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, where they may be using an IM injection or a lozenge, and there may be active kind of therapy that's happening during those experiences, um, where the the kind of um, thinking is that, the, you know, that's a big core piece of that particular intervention. Um, And so I would say, you know, there's any variation that you can, I mean, not any variation, but there's a lot of variability between kind of um, the the mode that the ketamine is is administered and kind of when therapeutic support, if it happens at all, is occurring with ketamine. And I think what's really, um, what I really appreciate about MAPS and about, you know, the um, process that they're moving forward with to get an MDMA assisted psychotherapy approved by the FDA is that they're getting really specific about how therapy is coupled with MDMA sessions. Um, and again, it's based on their, you know, clinical trials. Um, but, but that particular intervention, they're very specific about the number of pre-treatment um, sessions there are with therapists. It's a two therapist model right now, right? So that you're not just getting one, they're getting two before, both of us. during, <laughs> and after, right? And it, so it's a powerful, I mean, there's like 60 plus hours of patient contact with those, that with a course of MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. Um, so the, you know, I think the results speak, um, very positively that that's a a excellent outcome for a lot of people. I think at the same time, MAPS and other organizations are sort of struggling to understand, well, how are we gonna roll this out on a a big level? And how are we gonna give access to care for a lot of people? Because, you know, I think as many of us know, it's hard to get into a therapist as it is now. Wait times are extensive, people are backed up. you know, there are some challenges right now in having a mental health workforce that can um, see people under our typical model of care, like the 50 minute therapy session, 
now what are we, you know, how are we going to do an eight hour medicine session with two therapists for one person? Right. That's a real, that's a real factor that we, you know, it's going to have to be worked out. So we talked about ketamine. We talked about psilocybin and we're now chatting MDMA, which makes me really happy. So I was like, how am I going to segue into this? Like, so I am very, very interested. <laughs> I in haven't joked around too much. <laughs> that's okay. No, I was like sitting here like, take it. I also want to talk about MDMA and all of this is so important. And I want to chat about it all. Um, what is some of the, you know, we kind of mentioned the setup, right? <laughs> the therapists that are there, the fact that a medicine ceremony takes six to eight hours. Um, I recently put out on this channel. That's my biggest kind of biggest thing holding me back is I can't treat as many people. If I'm Mm -hmm. like, I can treat one person a day or I can treat six people in a day with that same chunk of time. Um, So that kind of feels like my own little ethical thing that I am I'm uh, experiencing, Mm -hmm. but I'm curious what the science behind it is. What are we finding? What is the compound actually doing for people? Um, You know, with psilocybin, you mentioned that we really Mm -hmm. kind of almost get to hack the mainframe of that default mode network. Mm -hmm. Um, And what is MDMA providing that is along those same lines? Yeah. So, so MDMA has some different, um, it, it works in a, you know, uh, different way. Um, so it's called an empathogen. Um, you oftentimes, uh, individuals who take MDMA, uh, the thinking is that you're able to experience because of this, um, empathy kind of promoting property of it you're able to kind of connect with the therapists that you're working with um, in a way that promotes psychological safety as you're moving through a process of unpacking trauma. There's also a bit of a stimulant effect in terms of there is a motivation and sort of a drive psychologically to, um, to maybe revisit past traumas. But there is also this kind of... Um, sort of this window of tolerance that appears to be opened up with MDMA. So this Mm. idea that my fight or flight and my amygdala, like we're not just going into, um, you know, a full body response where I'm going to run and flee from this content. There is an ability to approach it safely for the individual. Um, so there's a, an ability to kind of open up to things that have happened in the past and to experience it in a bit of a detached way. Mm-hmm. Um, the th- sort of the sort of psychological orientation of the therapist is um, one of guiding somebody to their inner healer. And so there's this idea that there is this part of me um, and you can call it by a different sort of name. Um, so inner healing intelligence is used kind of your, in the maybe DBT world, it'd be like your wise mind, um, spirits, your soul. There's different ways you can kind of conceptualize it. But, but the idea is that there's a part of you that is directed towards self-healing and that the MDMA opens up this way of kind of touching into that or accessing that part of yourself. And so the therapists are there to kind of provide some sort of safety and containment, but really the individual is the one that is accessing this part of themselves that wants to move forward and heal from past trauma. Mm. If that makes some sense. Um, and what's Remarkable, I think, about MDMA studies is that, again, people who have been suffering from PTSD for, you know, some of them, you know, a lot of their adult lives, um, you know, I want to say 67% end up being remitted um, from their PTSD diagnosis. And what's really cool is that instead of having this effect of after the medicine sessions, people feel better, but then like that benefit kind of slowly goes away with time. What it looks like is that people continue to get better. 
right? But even there's this, it's like this process has started to unfold that continues moving forward. Um, that to me is a really great aspect of what I'm seeing out of the MDMA research. Um, this idea that you're not going to, you know, feel better and then kind of sort of maybe slip back a little bit, um, symptoms return, but that there's actually this process that you're going to continue potentially to feel better as time moves forward. Yeah. I do a lot of IFS work with my clients. Um, Mm -hmm. and so naturally my, my ears perked up when you said there's a part inside of us, right. That's this, this healer, you know, in IFS, we call it the capital S self. Mm-hmm. Um, this part that is at our core, right. And all of our different parts kind of get piled on top of it in attempts to keep the capitalist self safe. Mm-hmm. And we've got to get to a space where we can allow the capitalist self to kind of drive the bus if, if we will. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that I found with MDMA research as well is that it's almost that like, I have to see it to believe it, right? I have to feel it to believe it. A lot of times we can work through these therapy modalities. And like you said, with the model we have right now in 50 minutes, we can only get so deep in 50 minutes, right? We can only find so many parts and have so many conversations with them and with this longer experience and almost this, um, I don't want to say sped up, but like, like the cheat code to finding the capital S self, right? I have felt that I have experienced what it is like to put that part of myself in the driver's seat. And whether this is my own belief or not, I, I do believe that it's because of that, like walking the walk or feeling it to believe it. You're able to tap into that a little bit more frequently in waking consciousness, right? Maybe not in a medicine ceremony. Does that sound like wishful thinking on my end or kind of what's happening? I'm not, I'm not <laughs> tell me your question again. I'm so sorry. So you're think so, so I will say, well, IFS is very much um, infused in the MDMA training program. So you're going to hear from some IFS therapists as you, as you move forward. So it's very much an influence um, in, in the therapy that's um, provided for folks with uh, MDMA sessions. Mm. Um, but you're wondering if, well, my question is, no, no, you're, I feel like you're able to, the MDMA sessions are allowing people to find that capital S self or that inner healer or whatever you want to name it more quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. and allowing people to somatically experience what it is like to embody that part. Yes. Um, And so my question is, my assumption is, and I, maybe I was just looking for validation, but my assumption is because I have experienced what it is like to embody that part, I'm able to tap into that a little bit more in my waking consciousness without. Yes. Thank you. You're, you're differentiating um, what we would call a non-ordinary state of consciousness, which is the medicine session where you're able to embody. And that's a big, that sort of that somatic experiencing, that's a lot of uh, the work as well. So what does it feel like to be, you know, touching into your inner healer? And then um, I think what your, your point is, is that when you're not um, taking MDMA and you're in your, you know, typical ordinary consciousness, you have this connection to what it felt like. And so maybe perhaps it's a little bit easier to connect with it in your everyday life. I would say that that is probably a big part of those integration sessions is um, sort of understanding what you experienced in the medicine session and how do we how do we take that embodied knowledge and apply that to the work that I'm going to carry forward after this session. Yeah, I think that, that is such an important part of any any medicine, whether that is mm-hmm. psychedelics or otherwise, is that integration piece and being able to use the downloads in everyday Mm -hmm. life, right. In my day to day. Um, so I know that wild health is going to be doing a ketamine study here soon. Um, can you kind of tell some listeners about that and what to expect and if they want to get involved what that might look like? Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So going kind of along the lines of, um, 
you know, caring deeply about not just the mental health of our patients, but the overall health and kind of lifespan of our patients. Um, we were curious as to if ketamine treatment for people with depression and for people with trauma, um, if it might have any impact on um, the biological aging of our patients. So you mentioned earlier kind of your genetics and your DNA. Um, there's this field of epigenetics where we're kind of looking at, you know, what's, what's, um, you know, what is aging? What, how is, you know, how is disease getting into our cells, right? Like how does mental health um, or mental illness rather get into our cells in a way that might predispose us to um, chronic medical illnesses? Yeah. And so we've, we've partnered with a company that specializes in a, a particular lab. So it's called True Diagnostic and they have something called a true age test. So there's your chronological age, you know, like how old are you going to be on your next birthday? And then there's your biological age. Um, and so there's certain um, biomarkers that can kind of tell us, you know, are you aging more quickly in your cells than <laughs> Maybe you would, you know, based on how many times you've circled the sun, right? Um, and so one of the properties of ketamine, in addition to kind of the mental health benefits, is it's, it's um, anti-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. And so what we're going to do with our study is we're going to um, uh, enroll folks with this kind of, you know, pretty severe depression or pretty severe PTSD. And we're going to do a test on their, um, their aging pre and post ketamine infusion series to see if reducing their trauma related symptoms or improving their depression is again, kind of slowing down an accelerated aging process that might be driven by their mental health um, condition. So that's, that's what we're, we're aiming to do. We're, um, you know, we're located in Lexington, Kentucky. So, you know, hopefully got some listeners in our area or, you know, know of somebody in our area. Um, but we've got a website. If anybody wants to learn more about it, it's ketamine.wildhealth.com where they can, you know, email us at research at wildhealth.com if they are interested in sharing this with friends or family members who might be interested in helping us with the study. But the nice thing about it is, you know, unfortunately ketamine can be a costly intervention right now. And so the ketamine series um, would be free and also the lab work would be free to research participants. So that's kind of a nice benefit of it. Heck yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> like, can I get out to time <laughs> soon? Um, Awesome. And if people were interested in working with wild health in general, right, getting their wearables and working with a practitioner one-on-one, -on -one, how do people do that? Yeah, just wildhealth.com. Uh, it's sort of laid out um, in terms of where you get started. We have some consultations right now where if you're, you know, not sure you want to sign up for something and not sure you want to, you know, um, you know, sign up right now, you can sort of learn more about it and how it might be helpful for you in your health journey. Awesome. Well, Kristen, this was so epic and the mic <laughs> is always open. Would love to hear what we find after the ketamine research. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks so much.